Section 24 of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 12 of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part 2. By Ida L. Pfeiffer. When we once passed this obstruction, delight and wonder arrested our footsteps. For some moments our glances wandered irresolutely from point to point. We could fix our attention on nothing, so great was the number of beauties surrounding us. Splendid architecture, arches rising boldly into the air, supported on lofty pillars, everything wore an air so severely classic, and yet all was gorgeously elegant, and, at the same time, perfectly tasteful. At first we reviewed everything in a very hasty manner, for our impulse hurried us along, and we wished to take in everything at one glance. Afterwards we began a new and more deliberate survey. As we enter a large open courtyard, our eye is caught by numerous pieces of marble and fragments of columns, some of the latter resting tastefully on sculptured plinths. Almost everything here is prostrate, covered with rubbish and broken fragments, but yet all looks grand and majestic in its ruin. We next enter a second and a larger courtyard, above two hundred paces in length and about a hundred in breadth. Round the walls are niches cut in marble, and ornamented with the prettiest arabesques. These niches were probably occupied in former times by statues of the numerous heathen gods. Behind these are little cells, the dwellings of the priests, and in the foreground rise six Corinthian pillars, the only trace left of the great temple of the sun. These six pillars, which have hitherto bed defiance to time, devastation, and earthquakes, are supposed to be the loftiest and most magnificent in the world. Nearly seventy feet in height, each pillar a rocky colossus, resting on a basement twenty-seven feet high, covered with excellent workmanship, a masterpiece of ancient architecture, they tower above the cyclops' wall, and look far away into the distance, giant monuments of the hoary past. How vast this temple must originally have been is shown by the remaining pedestals, from which the pillars have fallen, and lay strewed around in weather-stained fragments. I counted twenty such pedestals along the length of the temple, and ten across its breadth. The lesser temple, separated from the greater, merely by a wall, lies deeper and more sheltered from the wind and weather. Consequently, it is in better preservation. A covered hall, resting on pillars fifty feet in height, leads round this temple. Statues of gods and heroes, beautifully sculptured in marble, and surrounded by arabesques, deck the lofty arches of this corridor. The pillars consist of three pieces fastened together with such amazing strength, that when the last earthquake threw down a column it did not break, but fell with its top buried in the earth, where it is seen leaning its majestic height against a hill. From this hall we pass through a splendid portal into the interior of the little sanctuary. An eagle with outspread wings overshadows the upper part of the gate, which is thirty feet in height by twenty in breadth. The two sides are enriched with small figures prettily executed, in a tastefully carved border of flowers, fruit, ears of corn, and arabesques. This portal is in very good preservation, excepting that the keystone has slipped from its place, and hangs threateningly over the entrance, to the terror of all who pass beneath. But we entered and afterwards returned unhurt, and many will yet pass unharmed like ourselves beneath the loose stones." We shall have returned to dust, while the pendant mass will still see generation after generation roll on.
This lesser temple would not look small by any means, were it not for its colossal neighbor. On side nine, and on the other side, six pillars are still erect, besides several pedestals from which the pillars have fallen. Walls, niches, everything around us, in fact, is of marble, enriched with sculptured work of every kind. The sanctuary of the sun is separated from the nave of the temple by a row of pillars, most of them prostrate. To judge from what remains of both these temples, they must originally have been decorated with profuse splendor. The costliest statues and bas-reliefs, sculptured in stone resembling marble, once filled the niches and halls. The remains of tasteful ornaments and arabesques bear witness to the luxury which once existed here. The only fault seems to have been a redundancy of decoration. A subterranean vaulted passage, two hundred and fifty paces in length and thirty in breadth, traverses this temple. In the midst of this walk a colossal head is hewn out of the rocky ceiling, representing probably some hero of antiquity. This place is now converted into a stable for horses and camels. The little brook Litany winds round the foot of the hill on which these ruins stand. We had been cautioned at Damascus to abstain from wandering alone among these temples, but our interest in all we saw was so great that we forgot the warning and our fears, and hastened to and fro without the least protection. We spent several hours here, exploring every corner, and meeting no one but a few curious inhabitants, who wished to see the newly arrived Franks. Herr S. even wandered through the ruins at night quite alone, without meeting an adventure of any kind. I am almost inclined to think that travellers sometimes detail attacks by robbers, and dangers which they have not experienced, in order to render their narratives more interesting. My journey was a very long one, through very dangerous regions. On some occasions I travelled alone, with only one Arab servant, and yet nothing serious ever happened to me. Heliopolis is in such a ruined state, that no estimate can be formed of the pristine size and splendour of this celebrated town. Excepting the two temples of the sun, and a very small building in their vicinity, built in a circular form, and richly covered with sculpture and arabesques, and a few broken pillars, not a trace of the ancient city remains. The present town of Baalbek is partly built on the site occupied by its predecessor. It lies to the right of the temples, and consists of a heap of small, wretched-looking houses and huts. The largest buildings in the place are the convent and the barracks. The latter of these presents an exceedingly ridiculous appearance. Fragments of ancient pillars, statues, friezes, etc., having been collected from all sides, and put together to form a modern building according to Turkish notions of taste. We were received into the convent, but could command no further accommodation than an empty room and a few straw mats. Our attendant brought us pilau, the everyday dish of the East, but to-day he surprised us with a boiled fowl, buried beneath a heap of the Turkish fare. Count Zishi added a few bottles of excellent wine from Lebanon to the feast, and so we sat down to dinner without tables or chairs, as merry as mortals need desire to be. Here, as in most other eastern towns, I had only to step out on the terrace roof of the house to cause a crowd of old and young to collect, eager to see a Frankish woman in the costume of her country. Whoever wishes to create a sensation, without possessing either genius or talent, has only to betake himself, without loss of time, to the east, and he will have his ambition gratified to the fullest extent. But whoever has a great objection to being stared at as I have, 
will easily understand that I reckoned this among the greatest inconveniences of my journey. July 7th. At five o'clock in the morning we again mounted our horses, and rode for three hours through an immense plain, where nothing was to be seen but scattered columns, toward the foremost promontories of the Lebanon range. The road towards the heights was sufficiently good and easy. We were little disturbed by the heat, and brooks caused by the thawing of snowfields afforded us most grateful refreshment. In the middle of the day we took an hour's nap under the shady trees beside a gushing stream. Then we proceeded to climb the heights. As we journeyed onwards the trees became fewer and farther between, until at length no soil was left in which they could grow. The way was so confined by chasms and abysses on the one side, and walls of rock on the other, that there was scarcely room for a horse to pass. Suddenly a loud voice before us cried, Halt! Startled by the sound, we looked up to find that the call came from a soldier, who was escorting a woman afflicted with the plague from a village where she had been the first victim of the terrible disease, to another where it was raging fearfully. It was impossible to turn aside, so the soldier had no recourse but to drag the sick woman some paces up the steep rocky wall, and then we had to pass close by her. The soldier called out to us to cover our mouths and noses. He himself had anointed the lower part of his face with tar as a preventative against contagion. This was the first plague-stricken person I had seen, and as we were compelled to pass close by her, I had an opportunity of observing the unfortunate creature closely. She was bound on an ass, appeared resigned to her fate, and turned her sunken eyes on us with an aspect of indifference. I could see no trace of the terrible disease, except a yellow appearance of the face. The soldier who accompanied her seemed as cool and indifferent as though he were walking beside a person in perfect health. As the plague prevailed to a considerable extent throughout the valleys of the Lebanon, we were frequently obliged to go some distance out of our way to avoid the villages affected with the scourge. We usually encamped for the night in the open fields, far from any habitation. On the whole long distance from Baalbek to the cedars of Lebanon, we found not a human habitation, excepting a little shepherd's hut near the mountains. Not more than a mile and a half from the heights we came upon small fields of snow. Several of our attendants dismounted and began a snowballing match, a wintry scene which reminded me of my fatherland. Although we were travelling on snow, the temperature was so mild that not one of our party put on a cloak. We could not imagine how it was possible for snow to exist in such a high temperature. The thermometer stood at nine degrees reamer. A fatiguing and dangerous ride of five hours at length brought us from the foot to the highest point of Mount Lebanon. Here, for the first time, we can see the magnitude and the peculiar construction of the range. Steep walls of rock, with isolated villages scattered here and there like beehives and built on natural rocky terraces, rise on all sides. Deep valleys lie between, contrasting beautifully in their verdant freshness with the bare rocky barriers. Farther on lie stretched elevated plateaus, with cows and goats feeding at intervals, and in the remote distance glitters a mighty stripe of bluish-green, encircling the landscape like a broad girdle. This is the Mediterranean. On the flat, extended coast several places can be distinguished, among which the most remarkable is Tripoli. On the right the grove of cedars lay at our feet. For a long time we stood on this spot, and turned and turned again, 
for fear of losing any part of the gigantic panorama. On one side of the mountain range, with its valleys, rocks, and gorges, on the other side the immense plain of Calosira, on a verge of which the ruins of the Sun Temple were visible, glittering in the noontide rays. Then we climbed downwards and upwards, then downwards once more, through ravines and over rocks, along a frightful path, to a little grove of the far-famed cedars of Lebanon. In this direction the peculiar pointed formation which constitutes the principal charm of these mountains once more predominates. The celebrated grove of cedars is distant about two miles and a half from the summit of Lebanon. It consists of between five and six hundred trees, about twenty of these are very aged, and five peculiarly large and five specimens are said to have existed in the days of Solomon. One tree is more than twenty-five feet in circumference. At about five feet from the ground it divides into four portions, and forms as many good-sized trunks. For more than an hour we rested beneath these ancient monuments of the vegetable world. The setting sun warned us to depart speedily, for our destination for the night was above three miles away, and it was not prudent to travel on these fearful paths in the darkness. Our party here separated. Count Zichy proceeded with his attendants to Huma, while the rest of us bent our course towards Tripoli. After a hearty leave-taking, one company turned to the right and the other to the left. We had hardly held on our way for half an hour before one of the loveliest valleys I have ever beheld opened at our feet. Immense and lofty walls of rock, of the most varied and fantastic shapes, surrounded this fairy vale on all sides. In the foreground rose a gigantic table-rock, on which was built a beautiful village, with a church smiling in the midst. Suddenly the sound of chimes was borne upwards towards us on the still, clear air. They were the first I had heard in Syria. I cannot describe the feeling of delicious emotion this familiar sound caused in me. The Turkish government everywhere prohibits the ringing of bells. But here, on the mountains, among the free Maronites, everything is free. The sound of church bells is a simple, earnest music for Christian ears, too intimately associated with the usages of our religion to be heard with indifference. Here, so far from my native country, they appeared like links in the mysterious chain which binds the Christians of all countries in one unity. I felt, as it were, nearer to my hearth and to my dear ones, who were, perhaps, at the same moment, listening to similar sounds, and thinking of the distant wanderer. The road leading into this valley was fearfully steep. We were obliged to make a considerable detour around the lovely village of Bishari, for the plague was raging there, which made it forbidden ground for us. Some distance beyond the village we pitched our camp beside a small stream. This night we suffered much from cold and damp. The inhabitants of Bashari paid us a visit for the purpose of demanding bakshish. We had considerable difficulty in getting rid of them, and were obliged almost to beat them off with sticks to escape from their contagious touch. The practice of begging is universal in the East. So soon as an inhabitant comes in sight, he is sure to be holding out his hand. In those parts where poverty is everywhere apparent, we cannot wonder at this importunity, but we are justly surprised when we find it in these fruitful valleys, which offer everything that man can require, where the inhabitants are well clothed, and where their stone dwellings look cheerful and commodious, where corn, the grapevine, the fig and mulberry tree, and even the valuable potato plant, which cannot flourish throughout the greater part of Syria on account of the heat and stony soil, are found in abundance. 
Every spot of earth is carefully cultivated and turned to the best account, so that I could have fancied myself among the industrious German peasantry, and yet these free people beg and steal quite as much as the Bedouins and Arabs. We were obliged to keep a sharp watch on everything. My riding-whip was stolen almost before my very eyes, and one of the gentlemen had his pocket picked of his handkerchief. Our march to-day had been very fatiguing. We had ridden for eleven hours, and the greater part of the road had been very bad. The night brought us but little relaxation, for our cloaks did not sufficiently protect us from the cold. End of section 24